Hi, it's Dan here, and I wanted to let you know that this is a very special episode of the show. Some glimpses from my chats with four previous guests. You'll hear about 10 minutes of each guest's 60-plus minute conversation, which will give you a small idea of the many topics that we covered. Also, you can listen to the entire conversation at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Enjoy. Today, I'm very honored to have as my special guest, Gil Moore drummer for the iconic Canadian band Triumph. Uh, Gil needs no introduction as he is an essential part of the Canadian musical landscape. So to borrow a phrase from Bruce Allen, if you don't know who Gil Moore is, go back to sleep. So thanks for joining me today, Gil. How are you? Hey, I'm great, Dan. Happy to be here. Well, I appreciate it. I had to use Bruce Allen's line there because it was so apropos for uh, you. (laughs) I love Bruce. (laughs) (laughs) I got into drums, you know, because mainly because I failed in hockey. Um, you know, and then failed in golf. Like I wanted to be a hockey, I wanted to be in the NHL, like every other kid on my street. Yes. And, um, you know, then when I was about 13, I decided I wanted to be a golf pro and that lasted for a little while. And then I got interested in drums right at the same time, but I found I was a lot better at drums and, um, really never had any formal training, but I had some, I had some great, you know, uh, mentor sessions, you know, probably the the best one I ever had was from Skip Prokop from Lighthouse. And, you know, he kind of took me under his wing a little bit and, and showed me some, some magic, um, cool. some, some of his secret sauce that really, really helped me, you know, and I, and, and Lou Williamson, actually the uh, one time drum manager at Long and McQuaid, who was, he, he really uh, was very kind was sharing his knowledge with me as well. That, uh, you know, we just like most musicians at the time, you know, you're, um, there weren't the access to music education or music teachers that we have today. And so in a lot of ways, you just kind of had to dig it out of the dirt. And, you know, it, it came down to getting those, getting those free sort of uh, tips when you could from pros. And uh, I guess just listening to records, which I did in my, in my parents' basement. And fortunately, my mom and dad were really generous with uh, their noise rules. And I was able to, <laughs> I was able to practice uh, until 8.30 p.m. every evening. Uh, and they would go to the far end of the house, turn the TV up to, you know, 11, and uh, close the door. 8.30 would roll around, and we would have had drums rolling from after school. So say, you know, four, probably 4 o'clock or 3.45, they would have had drums rolling for four and a half hours at that point. Oh, yeah. Other wow. than a dinner break. And uh, they would say, yeah. okay, enough's enough. And uh, 8.30, no more drums. That was my training. <laughs> Music is one thing, but drumming the way you play is a very physical experience, right? And I know I talked to my buddy, Mark LaFrance, he's playing with Randy Bachman now, but he said he works out all the time and he's very aware of the physical aspect of it too. And that's something that, you know, guitar players, as I am, don't really think about that as much, right? Yeah, drums is very physical. And uh, I remember uh, Lloyd Percival, who was one of Canada's foremost fitness experts, he published a chart once on uh, cardiovascular, and it was about comparing different sports and, and you know, which sport produced the most, uh, I, I guess, uh, the effort required by the athlete would probably be a, a, a kind of a basket way of saying of this whole a bunch of data that he had analyzed. But, but strangely enough, he found that a, uh, what he defined as a rock and roll singer 
was uh, very was I forget was in the top three, uh, oh, wow. and drummer was also in the top three. So <laughs> I thought that was funny because I thought, yeah. So the worst job of all is a singing drummer in a power trio. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Because you got to control your breathing and you have to, you know, be able to do the physical part of it. Yeah, I, I just uh, I don't know. I just always looked at it as uh, you know we would warm up in the dressing room like a sports team, I guess. Um, you know, I would do a lot of deep breathing, you know, inhale eucalyptus, uh, to try to get the vocal cords, uh, you know, uh, sounding, uh, uh, get them to optimal condition, I'll say. Um, and then, you know, loosen up the wrists, you know, drumming on, on, uh, my knee or on a pillow or something like that. And we do a vocal warm up with the whole band, uh, in the dressing room, just acapella. Hmm. So by the time we rolled out on stage, it was kind of like, okay, it's the game on, you know? Yeah. I know that's kind of weird for maybe musicians who are playing in five-piece, six-piece bands, but the whole power trio concept, unless you've done it, and unless you've yeah. played what I'll call high-energy music, you know, if you listen to something, uh, you know, like, you know, one of the classics, uh, Jimi Hendrix, you know, and and uh, mm-hmm. maybe the Are You Experienced album, you listen to some of the high energy tracks uh, that they play. Yep. Some of those ones that really require the drummer to really kind of um, spread his wings, I'll say, across the whole kit in a very, very yep. intense way. And then if you add vocals to that, then you, you kind of get the idea. I'm, I mean, Rick sang a little bit more than than I did. I would I would say we kind of split the vocals 60-40. So he, yep. carried, he carried a larger uh weight than I did in terms of, uh, in terms of vocals, but I know it was very difficult for him too, because he's a very physical guitar player. He, he, it's not like he was standing in one, one position and just at the microphone, like, like he was playing in, in many bands where that's all the guitar player does. I mean, he was dominating the stage with Mike Levine and, you know, it's pretty physical for, for those guys as well. The first time I ever saw a live rock band, I was just enthralled with it, you know, and I was about 11 years old and, I was at the Cedar Crescent Casino in Port Elgin. My buddy Brad and I were, you know, probably too young to be there, although I, I don't think they served liquor. And uh, But we were just kind of these little kids, and we were in there, and we got up close to the stage, and the first time I saw, you know, a set of drums and, and you know, heard the bing, bang, boom, and 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 so on, I was yeah. just kind of, wow, this is yeah, something, cool. this instrument, man, drums, wow, I've yeah. never heard these things. They sound like... I don't know. They just sound so unbridled and so dynamic. They just, it's just like an instant kind of hook. But of course, then the whole thing is how many lawns can I mow to save enough money to get my hands on some drums? And that was a, that was a big process. I mean, first drum set I got was, was about 280 bucks and it took a long time to save up, you know, that money. Yes. And then once my dad could see that I was, uh, you know, I was starting to actually take it seriously. He he co-signed for uh, a loan at Long and McQuaid, which was about five hundred and sixty or seventy dollars mm. professional set, and that was that was. I just felt like I I, I don't know somebody just given me uh, I, I don't know I can't put yeah. it in perspective. When I got that first pro set of drums, I just thought it was the greatest thing since sliced bread, and uh, yeah. <laughs> those are fun That's days cool. to look back on, Dan. You know, I'm working with a lot of young people now through our school at Metalworks. And, uh, you know, a lot of young artists I talk to, uh, you know, through our studios as well about, you know, their aspirations and stuff. And, you know, you try to give good advice. And, and some of the 
you know, what I went through as a musician. And some of that knowledge you can pass forward. Other bits and pieces of it aren't relevant anymore. Uh, you know, everything that went on pre-internet, you can imagine, is uh, significantly different. But yeah. a lot of the fundamentals I find, which is, you know, hard work, just kind of outwork the competition and uh, try to, you know, keep your word and, and build those relationships. Like I know with, with Triumph, a lot of the relationships that we built, I mean, they, uh, they stayed with us for decades because of, because of loyalty and because of, you know, trying to shoot straight all the time. Yeah. yeah I, I agree with that. And still 100%. negotiate your position in, in business deals and so on. So yeah. Those are the things I think are really the keys to success, you know, and really those are things I just learned from my father. No, that's, it's a good word. And the other thing, one of the best pieces of advice I got from somebody was, you know, despite all the stress and you're tired and everything else, try to enjoy it as much as you can, because one day soon you're going to be looking back on it. That's a really good point. And, uh, we did enjoy it. I will say this. One thing about, about triumph is, um, you know, for a straight, you know, almost 15 year run, uh, it was pretty much just straight positive and, and high energy the, the whole way. And a big reason for that was humor. Like we yeah. would, we would realize that you were going to have the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. You know, no, you, there's no way to avoid them, whether it's weather, whether it's delays, whether it's, yeah. you know, all sorts of things that happen to you on the road, you know? But if you show up at a hotel and the room's not ready and you get angry about that, I mean, you're going to have a bad time if you're a touring musician. You just have to roll with the punches. So our way of doing that was 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 humor, was joking around. We fooled around with all kinds of crazy stuff backstage, and and you know, yeah. when we, you know, when we were eating together and on airplanes. Uh, I think sometimes stewardesses would would see us and, and and think, "Gee, what are these guys laughing about? They must be three comedians." But no, we were three musicians. <laughs> Best known as the lead of the Sincere Serenaders, Graham Shaw has been a part of the Canadian music scene, well, since the 1960s. I've often said, like, musicians can make music out of anything because they're so musical. And that was certainly my impression with you. I mean, you're playing just about every. You play piano, guitar. Even in one video, you pull out a trumpet or is that a cornet or a trumpet you were playing? It's cornet. Yeah, and you just whip that out. Part of the farm shop, 10 bucks, yeah. There you go, and you played it, and you, and you were wailing, then you do the blues harp. Like, a, pretty cool, man. I was like, okay, this is a true musician who could just make music out of anything. Thanks. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, I'm pretty horrible at flute. If that's any comfort. <laughs> well, the harp, like like you played the blues harp too, and I, I do I have to do it for my one of my John Fogarty shows, and I just suck and blow. I don't know. I'm I'm terrible at it, right? So anybody who knows anything about it wouldn't be overly impressed. Work, work for Bob Dylan. Be of good cheer. Yes, there you go. <laughs> that's right. So I, it worked, but you, I saw you playing it too, and it sounded good. Actually, you did a, a good job of it. Yeah, well, there's a lot better people, but I get by on it. All those. Uh, banjo piano guitar harmonica i have played uh, professionally in sessions so you were right in that scene like the the winnipeg scene when it was all hot and happening right with the yeah with the burton and randy and them and i guess they were a little bit older than you but you were right in the in the middle of that and you actually played with the devrons right yes i did <laughs> uh after after bert uh, joined the guess who I think I was maybe, then there was another gentleman named Wayne Arnold after me in the Devrons, and then uh, Wayne quit. So we're like uh, the Devrons V3.2 or something like that. I think we were the last uh, last iteration of the Devrons is the one that I was in. 
it was slightly after the Guess Who, I would say perhaps around 75, 76, Winnipeg really started uh, cooking. I think also uh, the legal age of drinking went down to 18 right around there. Right. And uh, all of a sudden, a very flourishing bar scene. Before, it was just community clubs, which were like local skating rinks. They have a little building in it, and the bands would play. That's where Burton came up through. The scene uh, and the uh, economic uh, structure there under changed a great deal once the bars opened up to the 18-year-olds. And, and people were actually making a fair living back then, you know, four or $500 a week maybe, which is, you know, we'll get a musician by. Hey, that's and, respectable. Uh, yeah. Yes, it was uh, a lot of fun. I, there were so many great bands. We were working. We were pretty popular, so we were working every week. So I didn't get to see a lot of them. Uh, one of the good things about a good Winnipeg band is you go see them uh, three or four times a week. And uh, every night was great. Nothing like live music, got to say it. So for you, what was your defining moment? Like, did you always want to be a musician? Was that just your thing? Or did you have to kind of decide? I never really thought about it uh, till well, I never really pulled the trigger till I was, uh, I was working on the CPR. I was a gang foreman oh. and uh, pretty well up, upwardly mobile. I was about 21 years old and uh, doing very well on the railroad. And then I just quit. Uh, to join a band, I was making, wow, back in those days, a whole lot of money, probably maybe $20,000 a year or something <laughs> like that, which in mm -hmm. 1968 and 69 was pretty good money. It's good cash, yeah. But uh, I quit to join a band, and uh, that was it. I was in a band. And then, yeah. you know, the band started uh, getting better and started getting more popular. And then, as would happen, I, I got hired for... Uh, some television writing and stuff just because I, I was a name you know a public name and then uh, some jingle writing and so i had my finger in a lot of pies at that point but you know the writing and then oh, mostly we were all covered bands but then i started writing my own tunes kind of sneaking and into the lineup <laughs> you know into the repertoire so it all just kept kind of growing it all seemed to have its own kind of uh its own kind of force that uh, just kept uh, growing by itself so you had the serenaders. I was reading your, when I was doing the research for this, you had the serenaders, but then you did the sincere serenaders in 77. You put that together. Oh, I had uh, about four versions of the sincere serenaders. It's, okay. it's the name uh, I, I stole from Walt Kelly, the guy who does the Pogo cartoon strips, which I first read, started reading when I was, I think about 11. It's uh, kind of a precursor of GB Trudeau, a political uh, comic strip writer. And, uh, uh, Albert and Pogo had a band. They were called the Original Sincere Serenaders. And oh. So I just stole them. I liked it. Oh, cool. And I started probably about uh, 67 doing it with some friends. And then about 68, 69, hired some real pros. And we started doing it. And uh, then uh, that ended. And then uh, I think version 2.2. .2 was the one that uh, you see in the first record and mm. by that time we we were playing every week and getting getting good yeah well the video i saw is smoking really really good yeah that's yeah. another aspect of the good times then was the cbc had enough money to actually invest in and support uh, local acts so yeah. they had a tv show every week that the local bands could play on yeah which is great that was pretty exciting in itself, yeah. too. And also helped us kind of hone our whatever professionalism we could muster. Yeah. The the record deal you got with Capitol Records, you finally you signed with Capitol, I guess, in the late 70s, right? 77? Oh, 79, I think. 78, mm -hmm. 79. Okay. And then, so that it says here that you, that you were signed as a solo artist and that they were encouraging you to use studio guys, but the band was the band, right? 
Yeah, the band was a band. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't dump them. Yeah, I was taken up to the seventh floor of Capitol Records, the Round Building. And where was that? In uh, the Capitol Records building in Los Angeles. Yeah, oh yeah, you went to L.A. Yeah, okay. And uh, they they did their best to convince me to to dump the band, but I couldn't do it. My players are good at their players, as far as I'm concerned. Right. So, anyways, that's yeah. the way that turned out. Yeah. Uh, but the management, uh, Finkelstein Fiedler, they managed. Uh, Bruce Coburn, Dan Hill, Murray McLaughlin, Rough Trade, they uh, signed me. They wouldn't sign the band, and Norwood Capital signed the band. Yeah, that's interesting, because because in the video, like, your drummers is smoking hot. The bass player's oh, great. Yeah, yeah, they're all great. <laughs> all of them are great, man. Yeah, I know. I thought. They weren't there by chance, no. So so that's what I was wondering. Was there like, some tension in the band? Like, was it? I never even mentioned it to the band until maybe 20 years after. Oh, okay. Well, good. No reason to mention that. No, no. I, I'm sure, you know, they're, they're all really smart people. They you know when I just got signed, that uh, it, it yeah. kind of did not make them feel as essential as they actually were. But then you're writing the tunes and you're fronting the band, so I guess they're they're going to... Yeah, I, 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 I think the tunes were... I, I would call myself, like, I didn't act like a real rock star, nor did I look like a real rock star, but uh, yeah. I think they thought the tunes were worth something. I did also sign a, a publishing deal with... Uh, the company that uh, Michael Jackson later bought, which gave me a, a real nice advance. Yeah, nice. And so that's you know that's the aspect of the songwriting thing, which is I, I think probably my long suit so far as entertainment goes. So here you are, you're a young guy, you're down in L.A. You got your players down there, you got a a record that you record, you get a decent hit song out of it with "Can I Come Near," right? So was there any talk about moving down there or, or sort of tackling the U.S. market? Oh, uh, it was released in uh, the United States. One of the things about it was it was four minutes and uh, uh, 40 seconds. Okay. And uh, that was not good for uh, commercial radio. That's yeah. way too long. Oh, yeah. I think they even when they pressed it, they put it as being four minutes long. Yeah. Because I think all the records then were, you know, topping out or maybe 3.30 or something like that. So it was, it was too long for the four minutes. What we heard, uh, it was released in a lot of places. Didn't get a whole lot of... Uh, attention in the united states as so matter of fact though we got dumped uh i think we and uh another canadian act got dumped after after their first uh, lisa del bello okay and so that's why uh, capital canada tried to sign me yeah and uh, tried very hard as a matter of fact and it was i like that record company but management said no come to us at true north records so i kind of had to do that yeah, I was curious about that because some some guys think, okay, I'm gonna go to the, I'm gonna go to the states. I'm gonna make it there. You know, like Andy Kim, Paul Paul Anka, those guys. You know, they go to the states yeah. and they're gonna make their. I their... never really thought of doing that. Never did. Yeah. But of course, you know, like I was never overly called enamored with being a star as yeah. such. You know, right? I I wouldn't say I had really had the drive to want to be top of the toppermost or whatever it is. You know, I, I, the record did what it did. Yeah. I made a record, which I think is pretty good. I thought the demos were better than the record we ended up making. Hmm. But, uh, you know, yeah. did it. My question is, you know, when you're down there, you're thinking, okay, this is it. Like, this is what we wanted. Oh, we're well, in L.A. LA yeah. After well, three months in L.A., I just wanted to go home. Okay, well, fair enough. You've yeah. been to the PNE? Oh, many times. Played there many times. Yeah, so. okay. You know, you go there and there's all the rides and all the shit. But after yeah. about three hours, all you hear is the diesels grinding. Right? Yeah. All you hear is the noise. That's what I felt anyway. It's just yeah. like going to the X. Well, good for you. I mean, I just, you're thinking, you know, you're a young guy, you get stars in your eyes and you're in LA, but you know, it's not, it's not all the glam, right? You're down there. Like, no. Uh, well, it was, it was pretty glamorous for me. They treated me great. Look at a penthouse at the Hyatt yeah. Continental. Nice. Cadillac to drive around. 
all my meals, everything, you know, eating at yeah. Mosul and Frank's and Mr. Yeah. Chow's and stuff. Yeah. It was pretty good, but yeah, very cool. I didn't, it didn't feel very, not my world, man. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest, blues guitar player and singer extraordinaire, Tom Lavin. Uh, Tom is best known as guitar player and vocalist for the legendary Powder Blues Band, but also as a producer and, of course, his famous uh, Blue Wave studio. So you originally came up here from uh, from Chicago. I guess uh, it's funny because a lot of U.S. people migrated up here, and I guess you had various reasons for coming up here. Some guys came up here to to get away from the situation going on down south and the draft and those kinds of things. I guess in a sense that was, you know, on my mind, I wasn't a draft evader or draft dodger. I wanted to get what was called a 2S deferment, student deferment, uh, for going to college, um, which they still granted in 69. In 68, I was in University of Chicago at Roosevelt University. And, uh, but things were tightening up and I thought, well, geez, you know, if they're going to try and shut the borders down and maybe it'd be good to get a, to be out of the country at times. So what I did was, uh, I was doing some acting at the time. I made a deal with the filmmaker that I was, uh, acting in his film to give me the, the outtakes of the film so that I could edit them into my own film. And I took that film and I applied to be, uh, to go to Vancouver school of art, which later became Emily Carr university, uh, in the filmmaking department. And I thought, okay, that's great. My girlfriend's up in Vancouver. I'll go up to Vancouver and I'll go to school and I'll get it to us deferment. I did move, uh, was accepted by the, the, uh, our college in their quote unquote film department and, uh, arrived in September to go to, to go to school. Uh, what I didn't uh, expect was that in the meantime, the film department budget had been cut by the federal government. And so it was basically a pixelation and animation department, oh. which I wasn't very interested in. Uh, yeah. So I, I started going to art classes in the day to keep my student deferment. And in the, in the evenings, I started playing in some uh, pretty raunchy nightclubs, yeah. of which uh, there were many, many at the time in, in mm. Vancouver to, to make a living. And uh, that's sort of where I got my, my start initially in the, in the music business here. I went to the, to the dean of, of Vancouver School of Art and I said, oh, here's, here's my draft board and you need to write a letter to them saying that I'm enrolled in university here. Nice. And he said, fine. And uh, so that I was, I was here for about, in Vancouver for going to school for, I don't know, it was maybe five or six months or something. And I got a call from some buddies in Chicago and they said, Oh, we got a, we got a gig and we need you. Uh, so come down and play with us for a week at this gig. And uh, I was sort of bored with art school at the time. And I thought, well, that's just what I need. I'll just go hop a plane and, and go do this gig. I was coming home from the gig three o'clock in the morning. And uh, I guess I must've had a tail light out on the car and, got pulled over and they ran my name and said, uh, they arrested me oh. and threw me in jail. And, and this is outside in a, just outside Chicago where the gig was. And I, I had no idea what was going on. And, uh, it turned out that I had an outstanding warrant for draft evasion. And it, what it turned out was that the Dean of Vancouver school of art in Vancouver had never written my draft board to tell them oh. so I was under the mistaken opinion that that I had a, a, a 2s student university deferment when in fact I didn't so I wound up having to volunteer 
for infantry duty in uh, in Vietnam. And fortunately, things worked out where I didn't uh, wind up having to go. I'd already lost a lot of friends there, so I yeah. don't, it was high on my priority list of things I wanted yeah. to do. Well, and history has uh, revealed all of that, so no issue there. Uh, well, thanks for sharing that because uh, that was a factor for a lot of people, and it was part of your reality. But so you, obviously, you were a musician the whole time, which was was to your benefit. And how did you how did you get into music? Did you start start playing blues guitar? I mean, I I played guitar since I was a kid too. We just picked it up and started playing it and having fun. Was that your, more your experience? We didn't have a lot of money. We were on the north side of Chicago, and uh, my dad ran a unfinished furniture store uh, during the day while going to school at night. It was his own store. And he, in those days, do-it-yourself was a real big thing. So he would buy uh, solid wood furniture that hadn't been painted or finished and then sell finishes and paints. So people would take the furniture home and, and finish it in whatever color they wanted, sort of do-it-yourself and save money. And we didn't have much money, so the family was living in uh, a room at the back of the furniture store. Oh. It didn't have any windows that opened. There was there was one little patch of glass block that let a little natural light through. And uh, my, my dad had a, a wood shop downstairs, so if he couldn't buy a ready-made piece of furniture for a customer, he could go downstairs and build it for him. So there was a little custom cabinetry going on. And we hired one guy uh, to work at the store, and he was a square dance caller from Oklahoma. I was a handyman, nice guy. And I, I guess I would have been about four at the time. And he came in and brought me ukulele and showed me how to play the ukulele. And he was divorced and bitter about it. So the very first song he ever taught me was, uh, I only want a buddy, not a sweetheart, because buddies never make you blue. <laughs> so in a sense, yeah, I was uh, my first song was a blues mm. song. And that's where that, that's when I first started strumming. Mm. I did that until my... Teen, early teen years and you know i was sort of interested in uh the folk music music thing so i listened a lot to a lot of the root stuff of that era which was pete seeger and then later a uh, woody guthrie and uh and after that of course and there was bob dylan uh that was really affecting me a lot mm-hmm. as i turned into a teenager and right about that time i had been going down to maxwell street as a kid so i had I'd been exposed to a lot of the blues greats who at that time were just local guys that would sit on the the tenement building steps down on the Maxwell Street Market on Sunday and play blues to try and get somebody to throw nickels in their cigar Mm -hmm. box. And then I think the real turning thing would have been maybe around 64, might have been 14. My buddy was older than me and borrowed his mom's car and we drove up to Lake Forest College and it was a concert of Buddy Guy and Junior Wells. Mm -hmm really early in their career they were young men and uh freddie Bilo on drums and uh that just totally blew my mind i was watching uh buddy and he had on a a leopard skin jacket he was playing a a stratocaster and he started taking a solo and then he took the strap off the guitar and he held it upright just by the neck and was continuing to play the solo with his left hand holding the guitar upright. Uh, and he slipped his right arm out of his leopard skin jacket. And then he shifted the guitar from his left hand to his right hand and continued to solo oh. by sort of hammering on and plucking off. Wow. 
and flipped out his left arm from the leopard skin jacket and uh, hung it on the mic stand and put his guitar back on and finished his solo. And uh, I thought it was a pretty cool bit of show business. And I loved the music. And I think from that was the point with which I really, really got hooked on uh, that early blues and rock and roll. Every city at that time had a style. There was regional music. There was really regional music in rock and roll, too. I mean, during the doo-wop era in the late 50s, early 60s, you know, you could really tell a doo-wop band that was from Jersey different from a doo-wop band that was from Philly. Hmm. Uh, and, and uh, you know, even we, you know, the Pacific Northwest had, the, you know, the the sound of the Kingsmen was, you know, or the Sonics or, or whatever. They're, you know, that was called Pacific Northwest Rock and Roll. And so as I came up in Chicago and started getting into teen bands and stuff, there were Chicago was really happening place for garage bands and the local radio, which happened, some of them happened to be the most powerful AM radio stations in North America. And uh, those guys, those jocks, their second, their moonlight gig was always to be a, a, a DJ at local sock hops and teen dances. And so every night there'd be a, a jock with some local band out there. And as a result, some of the local bands started getting their records played on the radio. And uh, a lot of them, uh, you know, had regional breakout hits. Yeah. Tommy Rowe and the Romans were, were you know, local. Uh, I remember my band was called the Deadly Nightshades, but, but we played with the, the, the forerunner of Cheap Trick. They called themselves Soup, I think, at the time. Rick Nielsen was in the, in the you know, Sticks was hanging around and, uh, there were so many bands that uh, that came up that way. Uh, the teen rock room scenes, those were non-alcoholic clubs, and, and they were all over the suburbs. And you could play every weekend, Friday and Saturday nights, which we did. Yeah. And so many of us did. It was, you know, the New Colony Six and the Crying Shames, and uh, some of them hit real national, like the Buckinghams, mm. right? Mercy, Mercy, or Susan, or... A lot of hits coming out of Chicago. The Shadows of Night were another one that hit nationally. Um, so many. So yeah, there was that was regional regional music. Today I'm very honored to have as my guests Bob Klanick, author of the book Promo Man: Backstage Tales from the Vinyl Jungle, and Nick Panaseko, the subject of the book Promo Man. What struck me when I read the book, though, is is how young you were. I mean, you were just a young guy. You must have had more more guts than brains, maybe in some way. <laughs> well, well, we spent more money than we made for sure. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting too because I know Nick was young, but so are these musicians, as I know, it comes through in the book. Uh, as soon yeah. as they, uh, you know, hit hit a certain age, they needed to get their hand on an instrument, and uh, whether it be through. Um, you know, getting their parents to help help them buy one or getting a used one, or even in the case of Chuck Grover, um, an acclaimed musician from London, uh, making your own. You know, it mm. was, you know, getting your hands on an instrument was it was incredible. These were all teenagers, just like Nick was. So these were his people. Yeah. He knew those people. Nick also, uh, you know, taking it a step further, you know, since they needed a source for to learn about things, he made up his own magazine called Soul Sauce. And, um, yes. and he put out issues of that to help promote his shows and what was going on in other places too. So, yeah. 
Well, that struck me as well that the connections, like everything's sort of interweaved, right? The record company, the record store, the the clubs, the the venues. You're, you're trying to bring all that together, and and folks need to remember back in the time when you know before the internet, when you had to do everything, it was very labor intensive, right? You're putting up posters, you're doing promo things for the TV or the radio, very labor intensive. So you had a lot of energy, Nick. Well, it was a it was a good time doing what I loved. So. Yeah, you found your passion, right? So you were passionate. I mean, that's I guess that's partly where the energy comes from when you're passionate about it. You you probably don't think of a lot. You don't overthink it, I guess. You just do it, right? You do a dance and you do another one and then there you go. Well, it's it's interesting too, Dan. I mean, the um, uh, the term promo man was basically I mean, Nick invented uh, created the term and also the job description, you might say. Um because it was the first appearance of, of the term promo man happened in the mid 60s somewhere. And it just, the, the job didn't exist before. As Nick, I think, points out in the book, there was just um, people, uh, you know, there were salespeople, you know, some people marketing, but no one to really kind of do promotions for the acts. So okay. and that was the wonderful thing uh, from my point of view of writing Nick's story is just that he got to uh, make it up as he went along. You know, he, his, his job description was pretty basic. Just get attention for the acts. And, yeah, uh, there you go. and he was good at it. And, uh, and he, you know, my, I, as I think I wrote in the book, I don't really know what else he would have done. <laughs> it was so much, music was so much, was such a huge passion for him. And, um, and he was so good at it. And just the rise of, of popular music in the 60s and, and rock and roll, yeah. um, it just dovetailed with him and his, uh, his skill set. You put your name out on the line and, uh, of course, uh, <clears throat> London Arena and Centennial Hall were just starting to rent out to individuals because usually they ran the, their own shows or mm-hmm. <clears throat> brought in a wrestling or roller skating or whatever was popular at the time. So to free up a Saturday night at the major venues was, it was a challenge sometimes. But what I really like, too, about writing Nick's stories is that he was so young and, of course, um, when you have established, you know, the establishment people putting on events caught wind of him, they did the the thing that, the you know, the only thing they could do is try and stomp him out. They basically got him barred from the union and until he um, and from putting on shows in London until he turned 18. I think he made him look bad in a way because he had a huge success with the Supremes and a few other things. And they said, OK, the, you're not a, you're not 18 yet, so you can't be a member of the union. Therefore, you can't book shows. But of course, that didn't stop Nick. He just pivoted and uh, started booking shows at in venues out of town, uh, including some seaside areas like Grand Bend and such. Mm-hmm. And, he, and nothing stopped him. London, Ontario, was not a huge city, right? Around 1970, I looked it up. There was about 200,000 people there, just yeah. over. So it wasn't a huge city, right? And but but it was vibrant musically. So how do you explain that? Well, we had um, uh, a good sampling of nightclubs that encouraged the the business, of course. So those were the days yeah. that a band played for six nights uh, a week, plus uh, maybe even a Saturday matinee. So yeah. you had um, you had a gap between the fifteen year old that was going on twenty and the twenty one year old that uh, could get into a bar without. You know, being underage drinking. So that gap had to be filled between 15 and 20. 
And that's where okay. we found our dancers to to be doing that. And, and also interesting, too, is that I think access to instruments had a great deal to do with it, too. I mean, because um, people just, all these kids just formed these bands, and they had places to play, and there was Nick to help finding gigs and um, and managing them in some cases. Speaking of Kim Mitchell, I gave him a start with a band out of Sarnia called The Grass Company, yeah. and they, they did a couple of shows for me opening up for Grant Smith and the Power in 1968. You mentioned Dominic Triano in the book, too. I was wondering your recollection and your connection with, with Dom and, and I, the Mandela, obviously, in the late 60s. And then what was your connection with Dom? Well, I brought them in in 1966 for a New Year's uh, Day dance. Uh, New Year's mm-hmm. Eve was on a Friday. Of course, Saturday came around. I knew that everybody still wanted a party, so we booked uh, at that time the Five Rogues, as they were called, and that's mm-hmm. where Triano came in. Also, uh, the headliner that we put in was Dave Clayton Thomas, who was getting a lot of uh, airplay for a commercial that he was doing for Brill Cream, of all things. <laughs> so my first meeting with Don was in '66. And over the years, I brought him back to London quite a few times with the Mandela. And then, of course, they played in London at uh, Wonderland Gardens also. Dom and I just became close friends uh, along with his future wife, Sean Jackson. So you mentioned Kiss, and you did a show in Detroit in 1973, and then you connected the radios and the clubs with the, to promote the show. And then you ended up bringing Kiss and Rush, who toured together. You put that together? I put that together in 1974, and then we brought them back in uh, December of 74 for the tagline, Merry Kissmas, which is a phrase that I coined, and uh, I guess I should have registered it. Well, it was it was popular. I knew of it. Uh, lots of people knew of it. It was a, it was a funny thing, and and it was it was a, the perfect hook, you know. And it actually really helped Nick get his job at Quality too, because I think Quality, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Nick, but it seems like Quality really liked the work you did with Kiss, and said we got to get this guy. All right, well, Quality just acquired Casablanca, which was Kiss's label, and mm. so consequently they needed promo. It still took a, a long time to break Kiss on AM radio. Um, we finally did it with CFTR in Toronto with a, a cut called Shout It Out Loud. Mm, absolutely. Super so that cool. was the, one of the first uh, major songs. And then, of course, the, the next one that came up was uh, Beth, which was a soft, melodic tune. That the stations that uh, would never play Kiss end up playing Beth, but of course they uh, played it before they would go to news, so they wouldn't have to say, say that the, the name of the act was Kiss. <laughs> they would just play the song and fade it into the news. Yeah, it was one of those things, and with that, and in, is, this is in the book too, uh, with "Only Woman Bleed" by Alice Cooper, they really almost didn't want to let the listeners know who it was, but the listeners mm-hmm. liked the songs. I think it was a, like a disconnect. How can Kiss have this lovely ballad or Alice Cooper have this lovely ballad? And the answer was they did, but they had to, uh, Nick and his in their promotion teams would have to kind of 
bury the lead, let the song, mm. let the let the song do the work. So that was kind of a smart. Yeah, I guess that's kind of a disconnect because those bands were trying to be shock rock, and yet that worked against them when you're trying to promote a nice song or just a well produced good song, right? right? Well, and just one other thing, you said something about the, you know, Kiss and um, Rush. They actually kind of, I, if I'm wrong, uh, correct me, Nick, but they actually met in London when Nick got Rush to open for Kiss. And that's when they clicked and said, hmm. hey, why don't you guys come tour the States with us? And which, yeah. of course, gave, was the begin the start of uh, Rush's success, getting them in front of Kiss audiences. Thanks for checking out these short bits from my much longer conversations with previous Liner Notes guests. Don't forget you can listen to each full interview at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Until next time, I'm Dan Harris.